In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I am Dr. Roger McFillin. Today's episode is a serious one, one that I hope you will listen to to the very end and that you will share this episode with those who are parents, who have children, or if you know young people on SSRIs, antidepressants. If you're a prescriber or you know a prescriber, today we'll tell a story of the research into SSRI use, better known as antidepressants, in children and adolescents. One of fraud, abuse, and ultimately institutional failure to protect the health and well-being of children. Utilization of antidepressant medications among children's and children and teens has continuously risen. Um, since 2017, actually, reveals a 28% increase in children under 12 taking antidepressants and a 41% increase in teens, with another spike during the pandemic. We generally see a jump of 7 to 12% every year in prescription antidepressants for youth and teens. We would assume, based on that rise, that these drugs have been proven to be effective, proven to be safe. And the assumption generally is, at least in the United States, that if a drug has achieved FDA approval, that demonstrates its safety and its efficacy. When you tell the story and the history here of antidepressants, it starts with Prozac when it was brought to market in 1988. At that time, few children and adolescents were diagnosed with depression. The understanding around that time and prior, as Harvard Medical School psychiatrist Ronald Kessler later wrote, was that mood disorders are rare before adulthood and that mood disturbance is a normative and self-limiting aspect of child and adolescent development. In 1997, the New York Times reported, until about 15 years ago, no one even thought children could suffer depression. Now experts estimate it afflicts about 4 million American children or approximately 5%. So this is really important. Prior to Prozac being marketed to the general public, in the general psychiatric field, depression as a condition in children and adolescents was rarely diagnosed. Then began a worldwide marketing campaign to increase psych psychiatric diagnoses in children 
to justify the use of psychiatric drugs. There was a push in the national media funded by the pharmaceutical marketing departments to promote the idea that untreated depression as an illness would result in substance abuse, suicide, and later mental illness. Here at Center for Integrated Behavioral Health, we have done a complete review of the scientific literature to try to inform parents of the lack of efficacy and the severe safety concerns with antidepressant drugs. And despite our best efforts, we continue to see those drugs being utilized at higher rates than ever before. The assumption still is being communicated, at least in our community, which is a representative sample, I would imagine, of many communities in the United States. They are being told that these drugs are safe. They should be a frontline treatment for depressed mood, mood lability, and suicidal ideation, as well as anxiety. The hazards are severely underestimated and rarely even discussed. The assumption by medical providers are they're safe, they're tolerable, they're effective, and should be considered as a frontline intervention. I've now come to conclude that nearly 100% of the prescribers are unaware of this history, they're unaware of this data, and they're relying or communicating most of their information based on industry-developed protocols and drug marketing pamphlets. So I have a responsibility today to be able to communicate some of the updated scientific literature, as well as an understanding of the fraud, the court settlements, and unfortunately, the suicides that have continued to rise. Let's start with 2016 meta-analysis. All of these research studies will be included in our show summary. Many people do ask for data. This is the opportunity, but if we don't get this out and people don't read it, we can't utilize it as part of an informed consent process. Lead author, Andrea Cipriani, 2016 meta-analysis of the published literature, and I'll get into some of the concerns where it's just the published literature, because there's a lot of data and literature, obviously, that goes unpublished. But of the published literature, which assesses the outcomes from 34 trials involving 5,260 patients and 14 different antidepressants, the conclusion was that there is little evidence that these drugs, antidepressants, provide any benefit over placebo in children and adolescents. The quality of the evidence was very low, the investigators wrote, with 88% of the studies rated at high or moderate risk of bias. In this review of what they characterized as low-quality bias trials, the only depressant, antidepressant that was found to have any 
statistically significant benefit in any trial was fluoxetine or Prozac. However, documents received by the British Medical Journal reported that during a 1994 uh, lawsuit that was filed on behalf of victims of a workplace shooting in 1999, uh, Joseph Westberger, he was armed with an AK-47 and shot eight people dead and wounded another 12. He's then shot and killed himself. Mr. Westberger, who had a long history of depression, had been placed on fluoxetine for one month before the shootings. Internal documents that were obtained during that lawsuit found that in the clinical trials for fluoxetine, which is Prozac, 38% of fluoxetine-treated patients reported new activation. And I'll explain what activation means. Yielding a a, uh, significant difference compared to the placebo and attributed to the drug. Dr. Richard Caput, who was the FDA clinical reviewer who approved Prozac, said he was not given this data by Lilly. That's Eli Lilly, the pharmaceutical company. Here's the quote. This data is very important. If this report was done by Lilly or for Lilly, it was their responsibility to report it to us and publish it. If we have good evidence that we were misled and data were withheld, then I would change my mind about the safety of Prozac. I do agree now that these these stimulatory side effects, especially in regards to suicidal ideation and homicidal ideation, are worse than I thought at the time when I reviewed the drug. Since that 1991 FDA hearing, Dr. Peter, Peter Bregan, who served as a medical expert in that case, has warned that the stimulant effects of fluoxetine can cause suicide and violence. He cautions that the 38% activation rate reported in the missing document is probably low because it doesn't include the other symptoms of activation, such as panic attacks, hypomania, and mania. So the question is always, how do these drugs, which are clearly dangerous, get approved for such a vulnerable population like children and adolescents? Well, they were based on very short-term trials. What are short-term? Eight to 12 weeks. And they were referred to as discontinuation and relapse prevention trials. What does that mean? It means in these trials, one half of the antidepressant medical clinical trial responders are randomly selected to be switched abruptly from their antidepressant at the time to a placebo immediately after entering the, the trial. So what would happen in these cases? The placebo groups were then placed in withdrawal. It was communicated at that time that those drugs did not have dependent qualities. We now know they do. So if you have a placebo group who is withdrawing, you now are increasing the likelihood of creating a statistical difference between the drug group and the placebo group. I hope that makes sense to everyone These drugs get approved by identifying a statistical difference between the two groups. The FDA requires only two positive trials. What that means is you can run 20 trials 
with 18 of them demonstrating a negative result. And then publish the two that you were able to develop a statistical difference and receive FDA approval. In a 2019 review in Frontiers in Psychiatry, authors Daniel Safer and Julie Magnozito concluded the trials used for FDA approval were characterized by high dropout rates, rapid withdrawal that occurs when you switch to a placebo, and relapse rates that are not dissimilar from those in the natural course of the disorder. They concluded there is no acceptable support for the inclusion of antidepressants in maintenance treatment for major depressive disorder in youth. In 2018, David Healy, Joanna Lenuri, and John Giardini uh, presented their reanalysis of pediatric antidepressant trial data in a new piece published in the International Journal of Risk and Safety. They relied on the FDA reviews of the trial data or found other methods to be able to receive the trial data. And thus, they did not report just on what was published. What they found was that all 20 pediatric studies of antidepressants conducted from 1990 to 2005 were negative on primary outcome measures, such as a reduction of depressive symptom. That's 20 for 20, folks. The drugs provided no benefit over placebo. This was true of the two trials for fluoxetine, Prozac, that were published and then submitted to the FDA as statistically significant in children and adolescents. In spite of these negative findings from these two meta-analyses, the FDA approved Prozac for use in children and adolescents and later Lexapro for pediatric, pediatric depression. For those who are involved in the treatment of children and adolescents now, you are probably observing a spike in prescriptions for Lexapro. How did this get approved? Well, one thing that you should know is that in March 2009, 2009 um, approval of this drug came less than a month after U.S. Attorney's Office for Massachusetts District filed a federal civil lawsuit accusing Forest Laboratories of having illegally marketed Lexapro and Celexa for off-label use in children and adolescents from 1998 to 2005. The suit also alleges that Forrest knowingly suppressed unfavorable facts about Selexa from the medical community and the public, including lack of efficacy in one trial and the increase in suicidality provided by pediatric patients. Two other placebo-controlled trials, one of each conducted on Selexa and Lexapro, had failed to demonstrate significant benefits of either drug over placebo the company acknowledged. One trial tested Lexapro in patients ages 7 to 17. The other trial was Selexa in adolescents. What they did is they cherry-picked studies that they were able to find a statistical difference, then they file-drawered the remaining. 
None of these clinical trials studied the long-term efficacy and safety of Lexapro. Nevertheless, the FDA approved the drug for maintenance treatment because the efficacy in adults, quote-unquote, can be extrapolated from adult data and from the drug's pharmacokinetic parameters, according to Forrest's announcement. In the federal lawsuit, prosecutors said that Forrest aggressively promoted the positive results of one successful trial in Celexa and concealed the negative trial from the healthcare professionals and the public. They also alleged that the company had used kickbacks, gifts, and other illegal means to persuade or induce physicians to prescribe both drugs for child and adolescent patients. Because neither drug was approved for pediatric use, at that time, the manufacturer was prohibited by law to promote off-label use. Forest Laboratories said it would then pay $10.4 million in refunds. But we're talking about a drug that grosses billions. On June 3rd, 2004, the state of New York filed a fraud action lawsuit against GlaxoSmithKline for repeated and consistent fraud for concealing known problems with efficacy and safety of Paxil for children and adolescents. In August of that year, they settled for $2.5 million and agreed to publicly disclose all its clinical trials about safety on a registry. Again, $2.5 million for drugs that gross billions. How has the United States government responded? Well, in public hearings in 2004, the FDA presented reevaluations of antidepressant clinical trials for children and youth under the age of 18, documenting that suicide risk was doubled in children taking antidepressants compared to similar individuals taking a placebo. The agency also reported that only one-fifth of controlled clinical trials demonstrated any potential for usefulness. Antidepressants have not only been proven ineffective for children and teens, they've been proven to be suicidal, to create suicidality. They're dangerous. In summarizing the hearings, panel chairman Dr. Wayne Goodman confirmed an emerging pattern of behavioral toxicity as a result of these drugs. The agency's press release stated, it is known that antidepressants are associated with anxiety, agitation, panic attacks, insomnia, irritability, hostility, impulsivity, akathisia, hypomania, and mania. The FDA published a new required label for all antidepressants on January 26, 2005, including a black box warning headlined, antidepressants increase the risk of suicidal thinking and behavior in short-term studies in children and adolescents with major depressive disorder and other psychiatric disorders. I want to ask my listening audience how many of you who were prescribed these drugs are informed 
of those statistics? How many parents are aware that this at least doubles the risk of a suicide event? Since most of your children who are provided these drugs have done so in an episode in which they may have reported feeling suicidal or questioning suicide. In a large National Institute of Mental Health study widely known as the TADS study, T-A-D-S, 22% of adolescents treated with an SSRI had a suicide event. This study was outside the control of the pharmaceutical industries. It's considered a real-world study. 22% on the SSRI had a suicide event. That was compared to 6% for those not taking the drug. That is a more than three times likelihood of a suicide event. 17 of the 18 youth who attempted suicide during the study were on an antidepressant. Yet, from 2005 to 2012, antidepressant use among, use among youth rose 26%. And during the same period, we began to see an increase in suicides, a rise that might be expected given the research showing that exposure to an antidepressant increases the likelihood that a child or adolescent will attempt and complete suicide. We see a nice association as antidepressants become more widely prescribed to this age range. There is a correlation with suicide increase. In 2007 to 2018, the rise was from 6.8 per 100,000 to 10.7 in 2018. We continue to see that rise. To believe that antidepressants are a treatment for suicidal youth contradicts all available evidence. Let me repeat that. To provide a suicidal youth an antidepressant, an SSRI, contradicts all available evidence. With the prescribing of SSRIs to children and adolescents taking off mostly in the late 90s into the early 2000s, so did the number of youth diagnosed with bipolar disorder. The percentage of children under 19 between 1994 to 2003 rose 40-fold. Yes, 40-fold. Those increased risks occurred during the first 10 months of antidepressant treatment. At the end of four years, researchers reported 20%, 25%, one in every four, 
Children who were, de- who were treated with an antidepressant have converted to a bipolar diagnosis. At the end of 10 years, 50% of youth diagnosed with depression before they hit puberty converted to bipolar disorders. Researchers at Washington University found previous to this period when antidepressants were prescribed to children and adolescents, there was no identifiable disorder called bipolar disorder for children. I don't get on a microphone and make statements unless I have clear evidence, case history, lawsuits, sufficient science to support my viewpoint. I'm not going to put my professional integrity or my license at risk. In fact, it took me a number of years to get to this point. I needed to be sure. But here we stand in 2023. And despite this overwhelming data, the risks and harms continue to be underestimated and we are seeing widespread prescribing of psychiatric drugs by medical professionals outside their bounds of training and competence. An evaluation I had with a 2018, or a, a, an evaluation I had this week with an 18-year-old young lady was prescribed Lexapro by her OBGYN. Do you know why? Because she asked for it. When I informed her that this more than doubles her risk of suicide, can worsen mood, and create potentially debilitating sexual side effects, including PSSD. She reported that she was not informed of any of those risks. She was 18, so obviously she was able to consent without a parent's involvement. And she did report a decrease in mood and sexual functioning since being prescribed the drug. It's my belief that antidepressants worsen depression and the adverse reactions to this can become more severe in time. There's good reasons why the clinical trials are kept short because then the drug companies do not have to investigate the long-term harm of these drugs. We now know that antidepressant drugs may stimulate a process that runs counter to the initial if there are any acute effects of the drug. This loss of treatment efficacy during the treatment and adverse effects will occur in time and can include what is now diagnosed as bipolar disorder and other paradoxical reactions. I will include a paper on this. The paper is titled, May Antidepressant Drugs Worsen the Conditions They Are Supposed to Treat the Clinical Foundations of the Oppositional Model of Tolerance. I want to remind everybody, too, when these drugs were brought to market, they were brought to market on a theory that many psychiatric conditions, including depression, were related to a chemical imbalance or low serotonin. And these drugs 
were designed to correct that imbalance. We now know it's widely accepted that that theory is false, promoted by drug companies without any science to support it. So we are now experimenting and creating a drug reaction in a vulnerable population of developing brains for an imbalance that does not exist. Given all the adverse effects, why would we take such a risk? It doesn't make any scientific or logical sense. And from a treatment perspective, we also know that having your child or your teen believe what they are feeling is related to a brain disorder, which is false, of course, decreases treatment outcomes. This makes sense because instead of understanding their emotions, learning to self-regulate, accepting some normal developmental challenges, validating what they're experiencing, makes sense giving the events that are going on and giving them the appropriate tools and support to overcome the problems that exist, they are now externalizing that control to something that is broken or wrong within them. They are less likely to develop the necessary coping skills in order to struggle to be able to face the problems that, that exist. It's even more nefarious and could be much, much worse if that child or teen is a victim to any sort of abuse or neglect. From 1996 to 2005, the drug industry tripled its spending on marketing, including a five-fold increase to -to direct-to-consumer advertising. Several studies have found that prescription drug ads don't adequately explain side effects and adversely affect decisions by patients and doctors. In one study... American patients were more than twice as likely to request advertised drugs than patients in Canada, where uh, most direct-to-consumer advertising was prohibited. This was in 2003. Patients who requested advertised drugs were nearly 17 times more likely to receive one or more new prescriptions than patients who did not request any drugs. Sean, you're with me today. Advertising is quite powerful, isn't it? It works. That's why we spend billions and billions on it. Daniel Carlot, associate clinical professor at psychiatry, Tufts University, and author of the 2010 book, Unhinged, The Trouble with Psychiatry, also spoke to the huge financial incentive for psychiatrists to prescribe instead of doing psychotherapy. He says you can make two, three, four times as much money being a prescriber than a therapist. When it comes to coding your sessions, what that means, that if you are a psychiatrist and you are working with an adolescent or a teenager, for example, and you choose not to prescribe, but yet sit and talk, Maybe use watchful waiting. Maybe a psychotherapy. You are decreasing your income. So you cannot tell me there is no financial incentive. We're not talking just about direct kickbacks. 
when I talk about the financial conflicts of interest, I'm not only referring to those academics who were hired onto the payroll and were ghostwriting those published studies. That means they were never part of the studies. They were just handed the data and told what to write by the pharmaceutical marketing companies to promote their drugs. Some of these psychiatrists were making millions of dollars writing textbooks, going to conferences, and promoting the drug and continuing medical education. But the financial conflicts of interest also include how they have coordinated with reimbursement rates with insurance companies, higher reimbursement rates for prescribing of drugs. They are now financially incentivized in one hour to see as many patients as possible and write as many prescription drugs as possible if they are going to maximize their own income. That is why when you go to a psychiatrist for a med check, it tends to be very quick. And even your initial evaluation, maybe you get an hour because it's initial evaluation and that is higher reimbursement. But that is why you are so quickly labeled, diagnosed, and prescribed a drug. We cannot make changes unless we acknowledge this fraud, unless we disseminate this science, unless we stand up as professionals, as community members, as ethical psychologists and psychiatrists, and parents who will protect their children, and for those who have lost their children, and I have gotten those emails, including one this morning in which her daughter, after being prescribed just 10 milligrams of Lexapro, jumped off a bridge, broke most bones in her body, was in critical condition. If you look back into some of the lawsuits that were settled, you will see that internal documents for various pharmaceutical companies revealed that when suicide or suicides were occurring in trials or the way that they communicated it to doctors was it was just a symptom of the illness. Yes, there was a two-fold approach to how to communicate suicide to the general public a symptom of the illness, but they also looked to discredited, discredited organizations who became anti-psychiatry and wanted to promote this. Many of us probably remember Scientology from the 1990s, 2000s. Tom Cruise was a, somebody who was pretty open about the negative effects of psychiatric drugs. There were widespread marketing campaigns and uh, relationships with major media outlets to discredit any organization as anti-science. We now know why uh, these, these groups were such a threat. This became a multi-billion dollar industry and continues 
to be today despite all of this. Some books that I do recommend. If you are interested in knowing the story of fraud, missing data, suicide, and how antidepressant drugs have both come to market and how they've been approved for adolescents, I recommend Children of the Cure, Missing Data, Lost Lives, and Antidepressants, David Healy, Joanna Lenuri, Julie Wood. Mentioned Peter Bregan previously, who has been an expert witness in many of these trials against the pharmaceutical companies, unfortunately occurring after major tragedies. He is a psychiatrist and physician, but he has a book, Your Drug May Be Your Problem, How and Why to Stop Taking Psychiatric Medications. This is by Peter Bregan and David Cohen. There's a fully revised and updated version. Hopefully from listening to this podcast today, you will understand why Center for Integrated Behavioral Health has clearly created a position statement advising against the use of antidepressant drugs in young people. Although a lot of this data applies to adults, we have to be more protective of our children and our teens because they cannot fully consent to such a treatment. They rely on the adults around them. I understand the challenges that exist. We are all taught to trust our medical professionals and we believe that they are acting in good faith and with the best available scientific evidence and there's just been decades and decades of conditioning that when there is any evidence outside the established medical narrative that it is conspiracy theory. However, you have to know that these medical professionals are victims to this system. If they were aware, they wouldn't be prescribing. Instead, they are prescribing based, as I said earlier, on protocols that are telling them it is the best available evidence. They were trained this way in medical school. And now, the majority, overwhelming majority, of these prescriptions are being written by medical professionals who are not trained mental health professionals. We're talking about psychiatric nurse practitioners. We're talking about OBGYNs, internal medicine doctors, pediatricians, your family medicine doctor, physician assistant. They do not have the adequate training. Their background is not an understanding the etiology of mental health conditions, the complexity of it, and they have not dedicated much time at all to learning about it. They are mostly responding to pharmaceutical sales initiatives to increase the sale of their drugs. Because of the severe risks to suicidality, as well as all the other adverse consequences, we need to make sure that this is widely disseminated information, but more importantly, what frequently happens 
is somebody has an adverse reaction to a drug and it is then misinterpreted by these medical professionals as a symptom of a mental illness and they become misdiagnosed and they start down the long and arduous path of polypharmacy, multiple drug interactions, and hell. You need to stop yourself from that process, arm yourself with information. Now you are really in a territory of experimentation. When it's done to children and adolescents, it is a crime. I believe these are criminal actions because we have now decades of information that will demonstrate to us that the pharmaceutical industry is the most lucrative criminal organization in the world. They have certainly paid enough in fines by the federal government and they have settled out of court. And listen, that is generally the path that is taken by those who sue the pharmaceutical companies. It becomes settled so they do not have to admit to fault. But we have to listen to the experts who've dedicated their lives to examining this data. Do not listen to somebody who has, does not have the expertise in this area. They have not earned that right. We have handed over our decision-making to too many medical professionals who have not done the adequate research. They have not earned it. They cannot speak intelligently on this. They haven't done the work. They don't have the background knowledge. They cannot provide informed consent, and they do not. They are working in a for-profit healthcare system. They are pushing people in and out six, seven minutes. That is the average time in a primary care center. And they are acting only in the bounds of those protocols. They are not going to act outside those bounds because they are going to put their medical license at risk. That is the control of major organizations. That's why that misinformation bill in California is so dangerous because it is communicating. You need to follow our narrative, folks. And if you do not, you can lose your license. It is an anti-science bill. I ask that everyone please do your own research. We will be posting the studies I discussed today. On our show summary, and I thank you for taking the time to listen to this to the end, and as I mentioned in the beginning, this is about human rights, and if we do not share this information, if this episode does not get shared, people will not know. There are not enough who are willing to speak out against this. And I am a clinical psychologist, so I put myself out there, and people can easily dismiss this by saying I'm not a prescriber. That makes no sense. I have the ability to read scientific data. You have the ability to read scientific data. And I'm telling you, 100% of these prescribers, if they're aware of, of all this and they're still prescribing anyway, 
they're acting outside of their ethics. Ethics trumps law. Always. Unfortunately, what you see is a whisper down the alley kind of effect. Over time, people repeat the same things over and over again. The message is on TV. It's on radio. It's in major magazines. It's communicated by the drug company to the doctors. It's placed in our popular culture. And we all repeat the same narrative as if it's truth. It doesn't matter the alternative evidence. It's been communicated so many times, people just now accept it as fact. How is this going to change? It's going to change when we say no more. It's going to change when the stories become public and professionals take the time to do the work. Please tune in to future episodes where we'll continue on these various subjects to bring attention these critical issues. Thank you. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.